Welcome to the Known Pleasures podcast once again. Here we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. If you want to hear more of the songs featured in this podcast, simply click on the link, which will take you to a Spotify playlist. Remember to click like or even leave a comment as we love to hear from our listeners. If you have any suggestions of bands you'd like us to discuss, let us know. Here's Mark to introduce today's band. For a band synonymous with the first wave of UK punk, the Stranglers couldn't have stood out more if they'd tried. Seasoned pros by the time punk hit, they were older, more musically proficient, and worst of all, one of their members had a moustache for God's sake, and played keyboards. Releasing two hit albums chock full of anger, energy and no little controversy in 1977 alone, by the time the summer of 78 and their third album had rolled around, they were itching to move on. Like contemporaries The Police, they'd seen an opportunity in punk, ran with it and just as the wave peaked, swiftly left it behind. Despite an early taste for attracting trouble and some very dodgy lyrics, they went on to manage almost 30 top 50 UK singles, ranging in scope from breakthrough Peaches to smash hit Golden Brown by the time lead singer Hugh Cornwall called it a day in 1990. First in and first out, the Stranglers strove to always explore new terrain and defy fans and critics' expectations alike, with JJ Burnell's driving bass and Dave Greenfield's swirling virtuoso keyboards being the only constants in a lengthy career that continues, despite lineup changes to this day. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll be taking a look at their six studio albums from 1977 to 1981, as well as some interesting side alleys. The question is, are they punk, post-punk, or are they just The Stranglers? Okay, so where do we start this one? There's only one place really you can start a podcast on The Stranglers. It's got to be Sweden. Really? The south of Sweden and not as far south as Malmo. I was going to say Malmo. No, no, a little to the uh, northwest of there, a town called Lund, if I'm pronouncing it right. A strange beginning for Hugh Cornwall, who was a biochemist, doing a biochemistry PhD or something along those lines. Oh, so he was there studying. Mm, Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the early 70s, 71, 72-ish. How old was he then? 23, 24? Mm. Something along those, those lines. lines yeah. Joined a band with a couple of other Swedes and an American on the run f- from the from the draft. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of, of Americans draft dodging Americans there at that time, apparently. Yeah, yeah. he and some chums formed a band called Johnny Socks, ah. which uh, is not one of the great names in rock and roll history. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, Sox, S-O-X. S-O-X. Okay. Does anyone have any idea what kind of music they played? Because it, uh... I think there was a guy that he ran into at university that had a whole setup that had been in some sort of vaguely prominent Swedish band before that who were a bit strange and dressed in sort of spacesuits and things. And so he went over there, jammed with him, and they kind of formed the nucleus of the band and then these other guys kind of came in and out around that. I think it was just basic sort of rock and roll. He was a busker before yep. that so he obviously had learned to sing and play to some sort of level of proficiency and uh he wasn't the singer the um, one of the american guys was the mm-hmm. singer but he was kind of content to just play you know behind him and um and that was his sort of first exposure to i guess playing live in a band and 600 kilometers north or thereabouts a quartet with a blonde girl and a brunette <laughs> <laughs> were, were doing their thing, but further south there but, was uh, Hugh Cornwell and his draft <laughs> dodging buddies. <laughs> I want to know how uh, Hugh's band went in the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> <laughs> after they, after Johnny Sock scored null point in the Eurovision Song Contest, they decided they'd had enough and, and thought they should shift 
from Sweden back to England. At some point, they got involved with Jet Black in Guildford. Yeah. I've done a bit of research on Jet Black. I think his story is truly amazing. Um, well, first of all, he was born in 1938, yeah. which makes him older than Beatle age. Like, he could have been a drummer in one of the British invasion bands if he wanted to. He would have been a little elderly to a drummer. <laughs> yeah, right. he, he, he was more of a 50s rock and roll drummer. Yeah, rock and roll. Background. That's right. I'm just uh, amazed that he... Um, he became a part of the, the punk movement because we've spoken before about how the age of the musicians kind of matters when it comes to their attitudes towards punk. We had a bit of a go at Andy Summers for being born in 1943 and uh, mm. this is going back even further in time. But um, I could go on and on about Jet Black's interesting and quite varied career, but I stumbled across this old newsreel, which I thought would do the job a lot better than I could. Jet Black, ice cream magnate and entrepreneur. Born in 1938, Jet showed a musical proficiency at an early age, playing piano, violin and the beat drums. After a seven-year apprenticeship as a joiner, he went out into the world to make his mark. He gave up any musical aspirations he had to go into the manufacturing and distribution of soft-served ice cream, or, as it was known at the time, iced confection. Yes, nice and creamy does it. Does it every time. Success came quickly to Jet Black with his fleet of iced confection vans zooming around the Guildford area, making all of the kids and housewives as happy as clams. Jet branched out his empire into home brewing. What's that tasty treat you're drinking, little boy? Why, that's Jet's famous home brew. But maybe try it when you're over 14. Jet's empire went from strength to strength, culminating in his purchase of an off-license in Guildford. What will be next in the Jet Black story? Only time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was the Jet Black story up to a point. Um, but that kind of brings us to a rather sad moment in his life where his marriage fell apart. Yeah. And he actually said that if this hadn't happened, then there probably wouldn't be a band called The Stranglers today. Mm. And then it caused him to stop and reevaluate his life. And then he wound up, um, there was this real pivotal moment where he was sitting alone in the shop with the lights off, fixed himself a drink, and then he switched on the radio. And then he made the decision on this night that he was going to get back into music. Um, what he, was on the radio? It, it, this was early 70s, so I don't know, the sweet, <laughs> glam. T-Rex, something like that. He actually did, didn't elaborate what it was on. But Brotherhood he, of Man. <laughs> Brotherhood of Man, yes. That would make you want to get back into music. <laughs> <laughs> so he advertised for musicians, and that went on for about a year. And then he got a phone call from Hugh Cornwell. He said, uh, we've just arrived from Sweden and our drummers quit. We need a drummer. So, um, so he threw all of his drum kit into the back of the ice cream van, put on, put on green sleeves, you know, put himself a nice, cool, <laughs> soft serve and a flake. A cornet. <laughs> a cornet. And he headed up the A3 to, to Camden Town. But yeah, I, I just thought it was amazing. Like I was reading this interview and thinking he had an entire life and quite a successful one before the, mm. before the Stranglers. But on these things, you know, yeah. that's, that's what the small things like this turn. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah. it's, it, it's pretty impressive for a 36-year-old to have done something prior to joining a band. Yeah. Well, he had a successful <laughs> life, so he didn't really need to do it. So that's the mm. interesting part of it. Mm. But um, I know that once they got there, one of the Americans and the Swede left. So it was basically Hugh, Jet, Black now. Mm. The band's fallen apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, Hugh, Hugh has moved into Jet's 
house. Yeah. Well, above the off license. They've uh, um, they're kind of at a point where they're like, well, they're going to have to do something. So they um, know Jean Jacques Bernal. Yeah. Well, they were they John, were as he's referred to most yeah, of the time. By they the were band. hoping to find a classically trained guitarist who was also a truck driver. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way that they met him is just completely random as well. He used to drive up and down, you know, whatever the highway is. They're delivering paint. And I think one one of the band members got a lift with him, one a hitchhike with him, and brought him back to the house, and they had a cup of tea and a joint or something, and then ended up becoming friends. And so when the band sort of fell apart, you went round to his house and said, Are "You interested in joining the band?" You know, he hadn't played bass; he he was a classically trained Spanish flamenco <laughs> guitarist, but you know, felt like he could turn his hand to that, and so so he did. Um, and then I think the next thing they did was advertise for um, a keyboard player to complete the band. Another ad in Melody Maker, mm. which was uh, for Dave Greenfield. I love the image of future Stranglers bass player Jean-Jacques Bernal and future Stranglers guitarist and singer Hugh Cornwell helping to sell ice creams mm. in yeah. the van to pay you know, their outside way. what schools and wherever else. Yeah. Mines are 99. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really fit with their image, does it? <laughs> that bad boy image that they had. So we've, we've got yeah. the band together at this yeah, point? Yeah, no, this is good. And... The extraordinary thing about Dave Greenfield, when they heard him play at the audition and he sounded just like Ray Manzarek from The Doors, and Dave said, oh, who were The Doors then? Yeah, said he'd never heard of them, which may or may not be the <laughs> which case. Which is I mean, completely preposterous. He had I, don't, a moustache, I, don't, I don't entirely so believe that story. But. Anything's possible. He looked completely out of place, you know, with the band, always did. Mm. Probably still does to this yeah. day. Um, so I guess, they, yeah, they set about uh, writing songs and rehearsing pretty feverishly and named themselves the Guildford Stranglers pretty mm. early on. We don't know why they wanted to be known as any kind of strangler, <laughs> but it was maybe just a way of getting attention. This is pre-punk. This is, what, mm. 74? So there's nothing on the horizon that suggests, you know, controversy or, or name, a name like yeah, that. Yeah, it was quite a punk name for, yeah. for 74. Absolutely it was, yeah. And it was certainly quite a punk name for a band that included on occasion tie a yellow ribbon in their set. Oh, they were still playing that, were they? <laughs> From Johnny Sox days. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, that probably ties in quite nicely in a way with the Strangler's name. <laughs> Possibly it does. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the connection. So, uh, yeah, well, we've got them there. Working hard, yep, honing their sound. The two songwriters, the two principal songwriters, mm-hmm. Hugh and John. And they went to see Dr Feelgood one evening in Guildford and JJ said, my jaw dropped. And he describes it as a kind of a seminal moment, a turning point for him and for the band in terms of, okay, this is the kind of energy we should be looking for. And they certainly were associated, I guess, with that kind of energetic pub rock Mm. movement which predated punk and also was kind of segued well into Well, punk. it was a large part of punk, yeah. the, the early mm. punk sound, yeah. If we're looking at the beginnings of that, the sound they had still must have been quite unique amongst any other band out there at the time because you had this very prominent bass style and keyboards. Mm. And like I said, both those musicians, classically trained, brilliant musicians in their yeah. own right, driving this sort of sound, which would have been quite unusual when it started to seek into whatever punk was starting to become, yeah. I suppose. I haven't heard any demos prior to their first album, if that's where we're at, but for them to bound out of the blocks like they did with that first album with amazingly distinctive sound, as you said, the bass enough. The bass was distinctive enough in itself 
never mind the virtuoso but really kind of punk energy of the keyboards yeah. mm. and the kind of attitude. Of, I don't of remember his hearing another band anything like them at the mm. time. Like there's some bands you could say are similar in, in mm. style or whatever, but there was nothing like them and they were really unfashionable in many ways. They were old, they had keyboards, they looked not quite right. <laughs> so there was a lot of things, but they were the ones that really were successful from the start. They, mm. they released... Uh, uh, Radis Norvagicus, or however you want to pronounce it, in April 1977. Say those words against Lolly. <laughs> I've never been 100% <laughs> sure on how to pronounce it. Um, but, but for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the name of the first album, it does appear to be what a Latin name for a the brown com- rat. common rat, Ratus Norvagicus, or Ratus Norvagicus. And yeah, April 77, and a sharp smash. Right, it was a right hit straight off. away, yeah. Mm. Well, as I've said to you before, Mark, just recently, there were three classics on their very first album mm. in uh, Hanging Around, Get a Grip on Yourself, and Peaches. Mm. And I remember at the time, the um, radio station we listened to in Brisbane played those songs all the time. Hanging around, can't do better than having three songs like that on your first album. Mate. Well, it was a number number four hit mm. in the UK, yeah. the album, yeah. but it was really, really slick. I mean, there's harmonies on there. The, you know, it's punk in its energy, verse, chorus, middle eight. There's nothing mm. radical there, but, but there's so much more going on than what there was from The Clash's debut album or The Damned yeah, yeah. Or, mm. or The Buzzcocks or anybody else that you want to kind of lump in with that. And then The Stranglers, make no mistake, are in that four or five mm. punk bands that everybody from the era associates with. And and one of the classic things about those early punk albums is how thin they are at the bottom end. Mm. So they're relying on the kind of energy of the guitars and the vocals, whereas somehow the Stranglers had this really dirty, chunky driving bass sound that was absolutely the foundation of it in a way that no other punk band had. They also had a very good drummer. Yeah. Who yeah. was p- pushing 40 by the way. But I guess I can't tell you what the sound of the drums on that album was like, whereas the bass sound is really, it's really quite, distinctive. Quite distinctive, yeah. And, oh, uh, I just mean in terms of that rhythm section. Yeah, yeah, they no, were very, sure. very, yeah, very yeah, rhythmical. Yeah, really tight. Really tight. Yeah. Um, you also had Martin Russian producing it, which gave it a thickness of sound. He'd worked with the Buzzcocks and went on to work with the Human League later. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he really gave it some polish and bottom end and guts. But the Buzzcocks albums didn't have a particularly chunky bass sound. No. And looking back over Martin Rushent's CV, he'd worked with the sensational Alex Harvey band previously and that was the only precursor that I could think of in terms of potentially, you know, how do you make a really dirty bass sound like that? And the Stranglers themselves say that the bass sound was like that because of JJ's terrible primitive equipment. Well, blown speakers, cones, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah. They, were, they were distorted because he kept blowing them. But you kind of feel like, well, a lot of punk bands, bass players must have been doing something similar with similarly appalling equipment. But, mm. yeah, so I, I did initially think, oh, well, it's Martin Rushent. But then was it in Hugh Cornwell's autobiography where he said that Martin Rushent was more about the vibes and, in fact, it was uh, Win Stanley, Alan oh, Winstanley, Alan Winstanley, who was the engineering kind of maestro who made it all happen. And Martin Rushent was, as well as being the straightest person any of us knew apart from our parents, <laughs> according to you, he didn't have anything very much to do with the sound, which is an extraordinary idea given how influential Martin Rushent was in terms of the future Human League mm. sound. But I guess the Stranglers had been gigging for two years solid. So by the time they arrived to record that album, the record company just said to them, 
just play the songs that you've been playing live. So they had they had a full set ready to go, and I think it was like that was the times to yeah, get it yeah. down quick. It's 1977. I think it was recorded in like January or something like that, and released mm. in April. So they really got it out fast. And the other interesting thing about this album is that there's three vocalists on it. The Stranglers, well, Hugh had always wanted a band like the Beatles, where you had two singers, but they not only had two of them sing, which is uh, Hugh and JJ, but Dave Greenfield would also sing. And a lot of the time it's very hard to tell who's actually Mm. vocalist. And they would write each other's melodies sometimes and and sing the other bits. It wasn't even like, I've written this, I'm going to sing it. It's like, I've written this, you sing it, and I'm going to do the other part, and you've written the bass line, but I'll I'll do that. Yeah, the bass is too intricate for me to sing at the same time or whatever. Yeah, so they were quite, Mm. I think Hugh sang uh, six songs on the first album, and uh, JJ sang five. So that's a very even split and very kind of unpunk as well. Mm. Another very unpunk thing was there was a saxophone. Yeah. And get a grip on yourself, which I love every time I hear that song. The addition of the saxophone in the chorus is fantastic. I think that the thing about them was they were just punk enough to make a splash and mm. fit in, but they really weren't. Yeah. Um, and that's probably why they were resented by a lot of the other bands. And, and the fact they had a huge hit album straight over, you know, right first the first time. Yeah. It's yeah, not bad, yeah. is it? Now, Mark. Yes. <laughs> are we going to talk about their lyrics? Uh, well, I, I, you have to talk about their lyrics in the context of it's 1977. Mm. Um, there's, there's no doubt some pretty dodgy sexism and uh, even racism on a couple of tracks on the first two albums. But I think it's part of The Stranglers, and I'll mention Bring On The New Biles and School Ma'am as being the two tracks that really stand out. Mm. But I think it was really a part of their getting up people's noses and really trying to be controversial. Uh, and that's what that's a punk thing. It's upset people. I mean, certainly most of the punk bands had a go at that in different ways. They took a different approach of this kind of bad boy, Mm. uh, troublemaker thing. How much of it is was meant or was serious or not, it's difficult to say, but it it, it certainly caused controversy for them at the time and got them noticed. I read an interview that they said people just don't get the humour of it. Yeah, and as I said, it was 1977. It's it's a different thing now. You would never be able to do that now. People described them as sexist in 1977, never mind in 2000. Yeah, that's what I mean. But but even in those times they were considered... This was the era of Benny Hill and they were still considered sexist. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it wasn't the banning order that it is these days because you didn't have no, social no, media. No, no. Uh, people, you know, and as a kid, you know, when you hear an album like that, it's, uh, Patrick and I discuss this, it's just, you know, naughty words and it's a little bit like, oh, wow, they've said mm-hmm. this or they've done that. And as a teenager, you kind of want that. Yeah. And it's upsetting people, so you're into it. You know, I remember hearing and being kind of quite shocked, but at the same time thinking it was great. Well, the uh, opening track is Sometimes, yep. and the opening line of the opening track is... This is a song that Hugh wrote when he found out that his girlfriend had been cheating on him. And as he described it in his 2004 autobiography, Multitude of Sins, which is a terrible book. (laughs) I read Um, it and I liked it, but there we go. I've I've read Jason Donovan's memoir and, uh, you know, I've got to say... That's saying a lot about you. (laughs) Jason's... It was free. Jason's (laughs) tops it. You know, quality-wise, quality of anecdote, interest, interest of anecdote. 
uh, etc. We'll, we'll try and make up for that lack of interest in our description of it. In his autobiography, Hugh said that he, the girlfriend who he'd found out who'd been cheating on him, he slapped her. I didn't beat her up because I don't believe violence is a solution to anything. Oh, that's nice. So that's all right. So he's not all bad. No, no, that's <laughs> right. And he also complains about, uh, was it the song Peaches? being described as sexist. And JJ said it was observational, taking on a character, the fellow on the beach, checking out the women in a fairly lascivious way. And Hugh said, the fact that I drew attention to it apparently means that I'm glorifying it. Like, he can't just be be observing it. But I guess my point of view as the PC dude that I am... In 2019. In 2019, is that if you don't want to make it seem like you're glorifying it, then you need to give some kind of indication that you aren't glorifying it and that you disapprove, but there is nothing remotely satirical about it. It's a straight, you know, I'm a sleazy guy and I'm fine with being a sleazy guy. And frankly... I disapprove. I thought it was about fruit. <laughs> but that was just me. It's about both things. Well, you could make that argument about Quentin Tarantino movies and a lot of other art as well, but I'm, I'm not going to go down the path of it. I was just pointing out that there were some controversial lyrics. I like it when they write songs that aren't offensive to women, like <laughs> Goodbye Toulouse, which... Well, that's uh, one of the worst. Toulouse, <laughs> Goodbye Toulouse is about the fact that Nostradamus mentioned Toulouse as a, you know, a city that was doomed. And it also happens to be, or happened to be, in the vicinity of a nuclear power plant. So they wrote a song based on that. And I think the song was written by Jean-Jacques Burnell, who, yeah. as is perhaps obvious, had French parents. And that's an interesting idea to me, in a way that giving a woman a bit of a slap is not as creatively engaging. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that they weren't bothered about courting a bit of controversy no. with no. these things. Um, oh, yeah. that's, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know that uh, how serious it was or anything else, but, yeah, it certainly was noted at the time. I think it's fair to say the first two albums are not going to be your cup of tea. I like them, yeah, instrumental albums <laughs> plus Goodbye to Lose. Uh, <laughs> let's you're, you're... leave the lyric intact on that one. And get, get a grip on yourself, I really like. So, yeah, uh, great. Great song. Great song. That's actually the first Strangler song I ever heard. I don't know whether the clip was on Countdown or something, but it was definitely on TV. I thought it was a great song. I'd like to put the two albums together. I know that No More Heroes came out about six months later in September, mm-hmm. Martin Russian again, and it had songs left over from the first recording session. So to think about that, you've had a, a number four hit album <laughs> and then you release another one in September and that goes to number two. So they were like the real flag bearers of punk at that Absolutely. point in, in terms of success anyway. Mm. Um, no More Heroes, Something Better Change with the, the two singles and then we had two of the more controversial lyrics in Bring On The New Biles, which still makes hard listening now, mm. <laughs> uh, and School Man, which is also tough to listen to in today's context. But as I said, I think we're, we're overestimating some of the importance of that, to me anyway. I, I still think a lot of it was just for controversy's sake and to get attention. And, and nothing was off the table in those days in terms yeah. of punk. There would have been people mm. more offended by what the Sex Pistols were talking about yeah. with God Save the Queen and Anarchy than, yeah. than this kind of stuff. Not that one's better or worse than the other. But well, they well, definitely got attention for it. Bearing in mind that swastikas were fairly prominent. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. As so, a, as a tool to, to shock. So, I mean, yeah. you, you can certainly argue a case. Yeah, I'm not. That. I'm not making a case either way for it. Yeah. As I said, as a teenage boy listening to it, I didn't have any context, and it was just outrageous no. and kind of naughty. And mm. hearing somebody swear on a record, then was, 
I don't remember hearing that outside of Bodies by the Sex Pistols. I never heard a record with swearing on it, mm. so I was pretty mm. shocked by um, New Biles, which certainly has a fairly uh, good old swear in there. Um, robust. Yeah, robust English language. Same deal with the, the vocals on this one. Hugh sings five of the tracks, John sings four, Dave Greenfield sings two, which is quite strange. So they had mm. set that kind of that, that style of what they wanted to do. And uh, once again, very successful. Two top ten albums in the space of um, six months in the same The year. song Dead Ringer was almost a rewriting of Peaches. Before we forget about Peaches, that had a strange feel. That was sort of a reggae thing they were trying to do, which is not mm, really, yeah, but that's what of, they were yeah. trying to do. And I read somewhere that Hugh used to go around to a friend of his um, in, in 76 and 77, get stoned and listen to Parliament and Funkadelic mm. records, which he said you just couldn't tell anybody or admit to. <laughs> but um, So he actually was aware and interested in black music and both him and JJ had, had gone uh, to a couple of gigs. I think they might have even hired out their PA to um, a couple of like black gigs, you know, DJs or bands or whatever, which are all black people and just them too there mm-hmm. as the white guys and kind of gotten off on the reggae side and the dub side of it and kind of found it really fascinating in a whole subculture that they weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. So I think Peaches is a good example of them trying to do something outside of the standard punk stuff, even though, you know, reggae was a big feature of part of the UK music scene as well. As well as being influenced by reggae, I think they were to some extent, oddly enough, being influenced by punk in that there are a couple of sections of a couple of songs that actually sound like, well, I don't know, Sham 69 or the more kind of sing-along chorusy songs and bands. So Dead Ringer and Dagenham Dave both have kind of sing-along, like football chant mm. sections, which it was striking for me hearing those albums because I hadn't really heard them first time around. And I thought, oh, they suddenly sound punk, whereas their first album with its Doors-ish keyboards and its grinding bass sound, which didn't sound like anyone else on earth, in some ways didn't sound punk. Mm. So well, it was it was interesting that they were dipping their toe to a certain extent, arguably, in the kind of punk vocal style. They were also writing about what they knew. Uh, Dagenham Dave was a big fan, a super fan of theirs, who tragically killed himself, jumped off the London Bridge, I think, one night after getting beaten up by a bunch of rival fans called wow. the Finchley Boys who used to follow the oh, Stranglers. The Boys. Yeah. They beat the living daylights out of him and... Um, he never recovered from that and basically had lost his position as the preeminent Stranglers fan and mm. killed himself two or three weeks after that. So they wrote a song about it. Which is a nice little, you know, testimony yeah. to him. So they weren't all bad. No, 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 that's right. <laughs> uh, no More Heroes was the only album that I bought on vinyl. And how old were you at the time? 38? Just <laughs> six months shy of Cusp Jet Black. 40. I just sold my last ice cream van. No, uh, 77, 78, I was been 16. How was it that an impressionable young lad from the suburbs of Brisbane was not only hearing the Stranglers but was loving the Stranglers? Enough to fork out, you know, fourteen ninety nine. <laughs> Yes. Album. Which I think I borrowed from my mum at that wouldn't point. wouldn't have been that much, but yeah, point taken. Yeah. I heard uh, Get a Grip on Yourself, as I said, on the TV. Very early on, a friend of mine made me a, a punk compilation cassette. And I just, I remember to this day that Something Better Change was on it. So when I had enough money to actually buy an album, I wanted to buy the album with that song on it. And I loved No More Heroes. I particularly liked the title track. 
But recently... Both, both of which were top ten mm. hits in the UK. Again, oh, really? Yeah. Mm. They could do no wrong that year. They were amazingly successful at the time. But there was another song which I didn't know until recently called Straighten Out. Have you heard that song? Mm, yeah. I love that song. And it wasn't on the album. B-side. I think it was a B-side. Like, but it's yeah. on the... If you buy the album now, it's one of the, the extra tracks. But I have played that song constantly over the last couple of weeks. I really like it. I've got a little story about the early days of punk too on this side note of when JJ had a punch up with Paul Simonon from The Clash. I think they'd all gone to see the Ramones. I'm not sure if any of the bands were playing with them or whatever, but I know for a fact that they came off stage. Maybe the Stranglers had supported them, I'm not sure. Paul Simonon apparently had a habit of spitting at the time on the floor and he spat near JJ as nothing to do with anything other than he was doing that all the time. And it turned into a face-off between the, the two of the most preeminent bass players in punk and post-punk. And they're you very don't often supporters. get a face-off that actually literally is a face-off. No, no, exactly right. And apparently it was all on. It either... Dave or Jet Black had um, John Lydon, you know, up against the wall. There was a whole, there was a whole thing. So, was, so it wasn't just a gobbing thing? No, no, it was a punch-up. Okay, right. So sorry, you had the so Clash and various, the Sex Bills and everybody on one side and the Stranglers and their kind of supporters on the other side. So there was a, a schism between the punk bands of the era sort of from then, as JJ yeah. tells it anyway. So they were on the outside of that from then on sort of Yeah, thing. yeah. Prior to that, they'd kind of all been mates all kind of hung around together a little bit. A lot of them kind of shared houses and they were all in the same scene going to see the same bands. It was and a small world, really. Yeah, yeah, JJ tells the story that around about that time, 77-ish, uh, he was sharing a three-room flat in London with a few other people probably. And because he was away a lot, he was like a co... Cohabitating? Uh, no, he when he was away, someone else would stay in the room. Right. That that kind of thing. Oh, Time okay. Timeshare. Timeshare. Timeshare, yeah. okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. so... He was sharing a three-room flat in London because he was away a lot. He was time-sharing the room with Billy Idol and with Steve Strange. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, apparently when they moved out, Lemmy from Motorhead moved in. Of course. So, so <laughs> now there's some walls that really need to talk. <laughs> it sounds like an episode of The Young One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, look, it was a small world, like you say. They would have all kind of been crisscrossing each other's paths, I suppose. In terms of how you describe those two albums, I think the band would agree. And JJ has described No More Heroes as being son of Rattus. Right. Which, which I think is a... I think the two albums are, are, are nicely put together and they sound similar and have similar ideas mm. behind them. And I said some of the tracks were left over from the earlier sessions anyway. Yeah, and yeah. for two years of gigging, they probably had enough tracks to, to make two albums. already influencing other bands as well, which was interesting. So across the pond in uh, Ireland, there was an Irish band called The Hype, whose singer was a huge fan of the Stranglers, and their live set included Stranglers' Go Buddy Go, and they were soon to change their name from The Hype to U2. I knew that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) And there may be more U2 tales a little bit later. Oh, excellent. I want to just go back quickly to The Stranglers' liking for trouble and controversy. And this is another one of their stories. It's reasonably well known about the time. They, they had a journalist, a French journalist, bothering them for an interview for a long, long time. And uh, they finally gave in. So they, they said to meet him on the Eiffel Tower, um, you know, halfway up the Eiffel Tower, uh, which he did. Um, so when he turned up, the band basically stripped him and tied him with gaffer tape to the Eiffel Tower and just <laughs> left him there. And that was that was the interview. And that, yeah. that, that was sort of got a fair amount of press for them as just the sorts of bastards that they were. <laughs> Most stories about 
the Stranglers make them interchangeable with rugby league players? Today, yeah. 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 So they involved drugs, alcohol, violence or sexism. And, and strippers. And strippers. And the stories you hear, I'm sure the stories are, you know, completely exaggerated and don't show the many colours, the many hues of the Stranglers. <laughs> the the caring, the, sharing side of the Stranglers. Yes. Yeah. But they do come across, in the anecdotes you hear about them, as I think the least likeable people in post-punk. I think they would take some topping. I think that that was very deliberate though as well. Like whenever I've read any of the books and they talk about these stories, they basically get straight on the phone to their publicist and say, you know, you've got to blow this story up and get it into the press. That seemed to be a deliberate story. Strategy. And I said it was sort of the times, and I understand what you're saying, that a lot of other bands did similar things, but not not to the degree that they did them. But they, they certainly weren't shy of those sorts of controversies. Like the stripper thing, which we should talk about. They apparently one night a guy sent his girlfriend up on stage to strip while the band were playing, and they just kind of went, okay, fine. Oh, this was the Battersea Park. Well, that culminated in that. But then right. over subsequent gigs, more people would do it, and it became a thing, like crowd surfing or whatever. Someone would do mm. it, everybody else would start to do it. So they started to get criticism for it from the music press and then some friends of theirs or one of the girlfriends of the band knew a few strippers and said, we actually think this is great and we want to show that we're in control of our own bodies and we're not being controlled by anybody else and we're going to strip during this show to show that we are empowered women doing what we want to, which is the other side of of the feminist argument. in the face. Yeah, but it's the other side of we're doing this because we want to, no one's forcing us to. And they they culminated in a gig in 78 or early 79 in Battersea Park where they had a bunch of strippers on stage playing. It was like a daytime gig too, which is even weirder. (laughs) And there's quite a few photos of it around, but they were just happy to embrace that controversy and I suppose make a point also that, well, Mm. we're not not asking anybody to do this. We're happy to go with it though as well. Um, that was 79 actually, but but we're bypassing 78, which was black and white. And yeah, yeah if, if you leave out 12 months of the Strangler story, you probably missed two albums. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, right. Feel free to edit it in wherever, but I guess it was just part of one of the stories I just wanted to talk about yeah, that's, with, that's, with the fact that they were quite happy yeah. to engage with yeah. these sorts of things. No, that's fine. I was just trying to segue to black and white. Well, black and white for me which came out in May 78 is another Martin Russian album of the three albums he did with them, um, which apparently are the ones they still make their money from today. Those three albums are where the income comes from because they were so cheap to produce and they really didn't have any kind of entourage and anybody... Hugh Cornwall tells that when he left the band and and the accounts were being worked out, that's where the money still comes from now. They're doing well to have signed recording deals and publishing deals as relative youngsters that weren't complete rip-offs. Well, I think they probably were rip-offs, but they did well enough that it still meant (laughs) that, that they made some money out of it. Black and White represents a real leap away from the first two albums Mm. and the beginnings of post-punk. In the way that we talked about The Clash, I would talk about their first album as a punk album, then subsequent albums like uh, London Calling were different again. Black and white experiments with time signatures, lyrical content, the sonics of it are leaps and bounds ahead of the first two albums. It's easily my favourite Stranglers album, which you may have noted from the way I'm talking about it. <laughs> it was a number two hit once again. So they three albums in 18 months and mm, they were all ma- massively successful and influential. 13 months. Well, yeah, less time than it takes <laughs> for a band to, to do a tour. These yeah. days they did that. Two singles were nice and sleazy. 
which was a, a take on Frank Sinatra's uh, Nice and Easy, and the, apparently his lawyers called up and threatened to sue them over it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it sounds similar in the title, but there's nothing actually connecting the two songs. But according to Hugh, they sent the lawyers packing, and that probably means in Strangler's talk... <laughs> they gave them a smack. <laughs> So it will certainly, Hugh wants you to think that that was a possibility because nothing the Stranglers did didn't involve some kind of (laughs) extremely masculine activity. That could be a a large part of JJ's personality as well because he's a black belt master. He was a black belt karate expert as a youngster because he was bullied. We should mention he's not French. He was born in England to French parents. Mm. So he speaks fluent French. But he was bullied as a child in England. I can't imagine anything like that happening in England um, back in those days. (laughs) Um, So he he took up martial arts. But anyway, he was very much into, as Hugh says, doing manly things with other men. So he's he's a motorbike rider. Mm. He's a karate expert. He's a gym head. He's, he's into all this sort of bonding male stuff. So that's probably a large part of that may come from him. He was always the first one into a fight if the band were playing a gig and there was a ruck in front of the stage, he'd be involved, which we will talk about later. But, um, yeah, Black and White is a huge step away from the previous sound to me anyway. Outside Tokyo in a, in a waltz time, three, yeah, four well, like times. Yeah, like a weird... It's not they, even that. It's they, like in two or three different They love times. a waltz, don't yeah, they? Yeah, They've done it a few times in there. But career. would it have killed him to do one more take and get rid of the flat notes on the vocal. Someone in a factory invented time. Uh, he's got a song about Sweden. Let me tell you about Sweden. Obviously back to his days there. Mm. Um, only country where the clouds are interesting. <laughs> not really giving it much of a rap there. And then they did a version with a Swedish yeah, vocal that's later right. on, didn't they? But apparently it didn't go down well at all in Sweden. Um, that oh, really? particular song, and the band weren't particularly popular in Sweden. I don't know if you saw any of this. They, they tried to play a couple of gigs in a Klippan is a town, I think they tried to play it, which has some huge population of these kind of greaser 50s rock and roll yeah, guys. Yeah, rockabilly kind Yeah, of. they're kind of rockabilly guys, and they took offence to punk in a big way, and probably this track as well. Let me tell you about Sweden. And when the Stranglers went to play there, they set up the stage and had everything ready to go. And these guys, I mean, hundreds of them turned up in these big old Cadillacs and rocker cars and destroyed the stage and all their equipment. Got into Jeez. pitched battles with the road crew, injured <laughs> all of the road crew. The road crew threw Molotov cocktails at the cars. There were fire. It was like a riot. So the gig was cancelled. The police escorted them out of the country. <laughs> and the next time they tried to play in Sweden, or maybe two years later, the police basically said, we can't guarantee your safety, so you can't come. <laughs> <laughs> Sweden has changed a bit since yeah. 78. Yeah, so I don't know whether that's uh, because of punk or because of the song Sweden, but either way, not popular. Or perhaps some kind of issue that the Swedes had with his biochemistry PhD. I was going to say, I thought you were going to go down the sexism path again. <laughs> <laughs> and Tank is also a fantastic song. Once mm. again, not about anything they know, but likened to being on the road and being a kind of stormtroopers through various countries. I'd like to drive my own tank. Um, yeah, I think this is a, an amazing album and it's probably the album that turned me into like a massive Stranglers fan and... Toiler on the Sea? Toiler on the Sea. I was a toiler on the sea. I was a toiler. Really interesting songs, really interestingly done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just love it. I can still listen to it and the bass is just phenomenal. I absolutely love it. The, this is the reason that Peter Hook plays bass the way that he plays bass because he was a massive JJ fan. Yeah, but... Wanted yeah. to look like him, played the bass down yeah. low. I don't think that has much to do with Black and White as such, though. I just think this album crystallises that particular sound. Given that this came out in 78 and Joy Division were probably in their mm, yeah, formative I, yeah. stages, uh, yeah. 
So once again, and vocals will split between the three of them again, which is still such a strange thing to do. Mm. And and for the life of me, I could never ever tell which one was singing a lot mm. of the time, mm. uh, which is yeah, which very is very weird. similar singers. Or they tried to sound like each other. I do like a modern day BBC review of the album, which says it contains a merciful lack of songs about how awful women were. You should right. tell us what you really think about. I don't <laughs> think we've really gotten to the core of your feelings on the strangers and these. <laughs> I'm really interested to hear you describe black and white like that because, to me, it sounds a little like grandson of Rattus. And I can see that developments have been made. There's more sophistication in the keyboard sounds and, you know, obviously synths have arrived on the scene that weren't around in 77, for instance. And there's like the sax solo on Hey, Rise of the Robots. Robots. By Laura Logic from X-Ray Specs. There Uh, you go. She was a woman. Yeah, we found one. Got her on the record. Yeah, um, and Toila on the Sea is obviously a bit more evolved musically and so on. But, uh, yeah, to me it does feel like more of a continuum from the first two albums, although certainly a step forward. But, yeah, I guess I would have thought of it as a step forward rather than a leap forward, so it's interesting that, that you describe it. I think it's lines. one of the very first post-punk albums. To me it's it's like got a progressive sound to it, and when I say that I'm in both senses of the mm. word. Progressive from the previous two and progressive rock. It's not... Obvious, and for punk fans, it would have been a bit of a challenge in some ways because, like I said, weird time signatures, songs with two and three time signatures in them, yeah. all kinds of strange uh, lyrics about, you know, it's not what the previous two albums are at all to me, but I can understand maybe sonically it's the same producer and it's got that connection, but I think it's a hugely influential album. And when I, when I, when myself and some friends started a band, we wanted to be the Stranglers in, what, and in later was? on in Brisbane would have been in 81, I suppose, we wanted to be the Stranglers Mm. slash Joy Division. They were the two. If we could emulate those two bands or somehow have the spirit and sound of those sorts of bands, that's what we were aiming for. Like they were massive influence on on ourselves and maybe not, as you say, in Australia. They didn't typically influence a lot of post-punk bands in Australia or kind of globally, really, that I can think of. Certainly the bass sound was... I think the bass sound did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, but I can't really think of anything other than the bass sound that you could specifically link with a whole bunch of other bands subsequently in the same way as you could, say, bands like The Cure or Joy Division or Susie well, and the Banshees. Or, or I, I take your point, but maybe it was a little bit harder to copy this sound because the keyboard... Because you had to be able to play. You had to be able to really play <laughs> to, um, you know, to be able to do this. And they certainly don't sound like anybody else. I think we can agree on that. Yeah. You know, you put the Stranglers up against anybody else and you know it's them straight away. No one relied on keyboards to the degree that they did no. from the get-go. You yeah, know, it yeah. was a really strange move mm. to do and maybe because they came before punk they didn't think about it. But you wouldn't start a band in 1977 with keyboards like they did. No, you, no, It'd that's just right. be stabs and noise. It wouldn't be this sort of yeah. <laughs> incredible playing that, he, that Dave Greenfield does. And in terms of a true kind of punk attitude, one of my favourite songs on that album or around that time is a song called Old Codger. Uh, which I think might have been a B-side. It was the B-side to Walk On By, which was a cover. That song, they'd become friends or they'd they'd gotten to know this 62-year-old jazz and blues singer and media personality, George Melly, who will be known to a lot of um, British people, and they wrote it for him and got him to sing it, and it's all just about what an old codger I am. And it's, I, I think it's hilarious. 
Well, this and is this is where we're missing the humour, Patrick. The humour. Ah, You're getting the yeah, humour yeah, now. Yeah. You're yeah. getting it. Well, I suppose once you've got a 62-year-old <laughs> guy singing about what an old codger he is, I can I, I can see you can the, get on board. the humour in that more than a bunch of scarily aggressive guys singing songs about about women. I think that's ageist, actually. I'm more <laughs> offended about calling that guy an old codger. No, that's right. He called himself an old codger. He yeah. was empowering himself. We're, empowering la- himself? we're oh, laughing okay. with him. With yeah. him. Okay. No, it's, it's a good point. It's, it, the humour of the Stranglers is largely mm. missed, and that's often because they um, made a point of being scary. Mm. That was their image. But I do love the fact that the Stranglers wrote this song for a 62-year-old mm. because their 41-year-old drummer... Who's, a, who's who not was, an old codger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> they get him to sing it and it's like you couldn't get less punk cred, really, well, unless you were later era Sex Pistols getting... Ronnie Biggs. Ronnie Biggs Ronnie on board. Biggs, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it shows that, that they didn't give two hoots. No. Back to the fact that they had no impact or very little impact outside of Britain, you're saying. Um, they were the first punk band to tour Australia. To tour Australia, You yeah. can't really say Elvis Costello was... He did come before them, but I wouldn't include him in that. I'd say the Stranglers were definitely the first to come here in uh, early 79. Fe- February 27th. They yeah, well, they played two shows in Brisbane, and their visit, we'll their visit passed without incident. Yeah, pretty much. It went pretty smoothly. Um <laughs> No, I Would think you care to I think anybody that's well, we're Australians, so we know, but particularly us Brisbane people know a couple of stories about about their time here, which once again they set out to, to create controversy. As they tell it, they arrived in Australia in a country that had no understanding of punk and didn't know what was going on, much the same as the US had treated them. And so they were kind of asked to play up to this image. Um, they were interviewed on the Mike Willisy show, which is quite a famous, you know... It was um, pri- primetime commercial, prime current affairs talk show. show yeah. so they, it, was, it, it was the show that everyone watched at 6.30 Monday to Friday. The interviewer was sent along with a lot of provocative questions along the lines of, you know, do you get into the animal acts like those other punk bands? Yeah, what does that even mean? Well, that's what they said. And, and they, they obviously realised they was trying for a Bill Grundy sort of moment where they would, you know, spit at him or do something and create mm. ratings. Typical um, Channel 9 to this day probably. Uh, <laughs> and so subsequently, of course, they, they played up to that and, and they got the reaction that they wanted from the show. And famously... Um, Molly Meldrum, who was the host of Countdown, the, the very popular Australian music program at the time here, was watching the show, called up the, the producers of the Willisy show and cancelled the Stranglers' appearance forthwith after <laughs> seeing this because he'd had a bit of trouble with them, you know, prior to this anyway because they were being difficult and didn't want to play this song, didn't want to play that song. So Molly just cancelled it based on seeing them on the show. Um, so this set them up for the tour really nicely, as you can imagine, <laughs> in Australia, because wherever they went, there were people out to get them, a la the Sex Pistols. You know, mm. we've seen these guys on TV. Who are these punk yobs? Mm. Um, I've got a couple of quotes that I have to have to give you from Molly uh, at the time. He said, I'd rather be spending my time working out what Dragon are doing or what the Angels are doing than the Stranglers, <laughs> which shows you where he was at. A couple of very mainstream rock and roll yeah, bands of which, the era. Which, which, if you've never heard of, will tell you exactly what we're talking about. He also said, you don't get people like Rod Stewart and Linda Ronstadt, the Doobie Brothers, etc., acting like that. You certainly don't, Molly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he finished off with, quite frankly, the black and white album is full of bullshit and the single Walk On By... This is a quote. You could be sitting on a dummy, vomiting shit, and you still wouldn't appreciate those. Now, Molly, tell us what you really think. So, not a fan of the Stranglers. 
um, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, so, yeah, the scene was set. They had some trouble in Adelaide uh, with the police there, but nothing compared to Brisbane, uh, where they played two shows at the Queen's Hotel, one of which ended in a riot after Hugh was um, hit on the head with a beer glass. Uh, one of the other shows, JJ Burnell jumped into the crowd and smashed a, a pogoing spitting punter over the head with his bass. That was V2. That was the uh, the, the, the mm. guy called himself V2. Um, and I mean, but really, the people had paid $6.50 for this show, so they're entitled to express themselves as they saw fit. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh says that the uh, Queensland government set it up and had undercover cops in there to kind of. Um, be provocateurs. And you guys lived in Queensland around about that time. That seems preposterous, doesn't it? It com- seems completely, absolutely possible to me because that, that was the environment at the time. Mm. But there would have been people there wanting trouble as well. After you, after this has been set up on Mike Willisie and Countdown, you're going to get people there and go, mm. well, we'll see what these guys are about. There was an interview that I saw with Jet Black where he said they'd done about five TV interviews and none had gone to air and Jet said he called it a sinister campaign to keep them off the TV. I think it was just it tied in nicely with a bit of hysteria about mm. this stuff. And I remember in those days, you know, everybody thought all punks were like children killing, you know, psychopaths basically. Mm. So it set up that hysteria nicely and it got them a lot of pub- publicity. And, I mean, we're still talking about these shows now. Mm. Uh, I didn't go to those shows. I wish I had. Even I was a bit young then. I'd only just become a man at that point, I think. Whatever that I'd left high school in seven You'd made some discoveries. So basically I was only two months out of high school then. So I wouldn't have had any money. Um, but you'd, you'd bought an album of theirs a few months earlier. Yes, but as I said, I probably borrowed that money. Yeah, it would have been safer to buy the album than to go to the gig. <laughs> by the sound sure. of it, yeah, yeah. But I would love to have seen it. Like, it's become so iconic now. It's a piece of history, that show. Yeah. You know? I mean, that guy who got belted over the head still living off it. I mean, he's mm. lucky because JJ is, is, like I said, a high uh, karate black belt. He's lucky yeah. he didn't get worse than that. Yeah, but he, he used his base, so he was really cheating. Oh, he may have just given him a knock on the head rather than swung it. Mm. You know, he's mm, not going to damage right. a nice base. <laughs> but, mm. Anyway, this this is all uh, early '79, so they pretty much, um, you know, came, saw, conquered, and went. <laughs> I think it was around about this time that they played in Dublin and were supported by the U2s. And uh, were they called U2 at this point? Uh, yeah, they were. And uh, yeah, apparently, Stranglers didn't let them have a sound check. They took all the dressing rooms for themselves, and they kept all of the rider, all the beer and the wine for for themselves as well. So Bono went into their dressing room, stole a bottle of wine got into an argument with JJ about treating your support band with a bit of respect in a world of no more heroes. Oh, dear. That sounds like <laughs> revisionism <laughs> to me. That sounds like his, his version of it now. Oh, the, was, didn't Hugh tell a few um, Irish jokes from the stage as well? <laughs> right, probably. And the bouncers came backstage afterwards and said to him, did you, yeah. did you hear the one about the Englishman that was found black and blue in the river? <laughs> and then he goes, no, I didn't. He said, yeah, he told a few too many Irish jokes. Je suis de Charlemagne. So there we were, 1979, and amazingly the Stranglers found time to record some music. Well, they took a bit of a break there because it came out in September 79, so there was a bit of time there <laughs> between mm. Black but, and White in May. And But uh, in the meantime, bass player Jean-Jacques Bernal had recorded a solo album, so that was April right. 79 that came out. Two solo albums came out that year from both singers, shall we say, well, two of the singers. Uh, You're a Man Cometh you're referring to, though, which... Um, came out in April 79 was the top 40 UK hit mm. uh, I electronic electronic with kind of dub electronic. bass really like heavy heavy dub bass notes 
Um, I think it's um, fantastic. I love it. Mm. I might even prefer it to the best Stranglers album of all time. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I had Brian James from The Damned played some guitar on it. Hugh also released an album in November, 79, called Nosferatu. He worked with Robert Williams, who was Captain Beefheart's drummer. Uh, Devo, Mark and Bob play and perform on one of those songs, right. and it sounds very much like Devo. The name eludes me. The Clash were also on, and so is Ian Jury. Uh, it's not quite as easy to listen to as Euroman. Standout prefer. tracks? Uh, the Devo track. Some say it was a style to the way it was close. Some say it was the actions of a manager I know. But the band themselves had recorded an album called The Raven. The Raven, yeah, uh, and had moved on from Martin Rushant, who had been involved in this album, but came into the studio one day while they were playing around with a track called Men in Black and said, if this is the kind of thing that you're doing, I'm not interested, goodbye, and walked out. Wow. So that was the end of it. So Alan Wynne Stanley, uh, who was engineering it, I think, took over, and they also helped with the production as well. So, yeah, inauspicious beginning. Um, and what do you make of The Raven? I liked it at the time. Duchess and Nuclear Device, which was written about Brisbane's political situation, the Queensland situation, interestingly, were the two singles, and Don't Bring Harry. I don't know uh, it made number four, so consistently... Mm. I think it's a little patchy in places. Like, there are some great songs on it, like Dead Los Angeles. I was going to say Dead Los Angeles, where the, the vocal line follows the bass line. Plastic beaches there, on concrete beaches there. You see the leeches there, you see the leeches there. Uh, Baroque Bordello, I think, is a really interesting song. Once again, it kind of sung in a round. It's straight, everyone's playing different time signatures. I think it's really interesting. In Like the Raven, it's it's a bit more of a concept album, mm. may, or maybe it's a further exploring of the idea of a concept album. Um, the other part about the, this album is Men in Black is the precursor to the Men in Black album, yeah, which is mm. the following album about their obsession with aliens and, and and all of that business, which is a whole other thing. Their descent into their drug hell, <laughs> if you like. Uh, but there's a track on on here. Well, Men in Black is a very slow, strange track, and it's actually another track called Two Sunspots played at half speed which appears later on Speeded up vocal. Yeah, yeah. So they th they were just kind of playing around with it, and I can understand mm. why Martin Russian kind of had enough and walked out. Well, it's, it's not a pop song. Well, <laughs> in, well, in some ways, there are similarities with the later Human League Dare sound in terms of the the electronics. Yeah, yeah. Which is Martin Russian's finest hour. Well, they were certainly not shy about experimenting with with electronics and keyboards and and doing something different. I don't think they were ever content to sit still and just go well. As you said, we could have made a lot of money and been far more successful if we just kept releasing versions of the first two albums. Um, just keep doing the same thing over and over again until people give in. 
Mm. And you become hugely successful. They had more problems this time with the artwork than with the controversy with the songs. Mm. Well, there wasn't much in the way of controversial lyrics on this. No, no it was all no, a little right. bit esoteric and a bit hard to follow. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and maybe that's where they lost a few people. I think. But they had to withdraw the original album, I think, because of a photo on the inner artwork of the Premier of Queensland, Joe Bjorki Peterson. That's right. Who is the star of the song Nuclear Device, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so the idea of a Premier from a state in Australia being responsible for the uh, re- removal of artwork of a post-punk band in it's England pretty is unique. quite... Well, they quite really went to town on that song. I mean, the lyrics are... are there's no two ways about it. Brisbane men stayed at home at night because I outlawed all of the vice. It's one of those classic lines. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I think gatherings of more than four people were banned at the time. and mm. It really was verging on a police state situation if you didn't fit in. Yeah. You, you could, I mean, I was arrested twice on the street just for standing around. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I didn't do anything. I was locked up and they could do that. They could throw you in jail overnight for, with no charge. Were you wearing anything antisocial at the time? I don't think so. I was just had my usual whatever I was wearing at the time. Which was? Oh, just, you know, whatever punk outfit at the time that, 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 a, that a kid Started in... Started dog collar. Something along those lines. Yeah. It was, you know, it was 1980 or 81, I can't remember. Mm. But, um, yeah, you could do that. And so I guess at least they got a good song out of it. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Graham, how do you feel about The Raven, given that you're also a huge black and white fan like me? Yes. I like The Raven. As I said, Dead Los Angeles was a great song. Nuclear Device, Duchess, the title track I really like. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I still preferred black and white. I, I think, think it lost a bit of focus yeah. to me. Mm. I don't know. It felt... I listen to it now and I enjoy it, but not all of it. Parts of it are a little bit throwaway. Um, I like Genetics, the one that Dave Greenfield sang on as well. But, yeah, it, I wouldn't put it in my top Stranglers albums. And Nuclear Device always felt a bit throwaway to me. It, mm. there's, a, there's a bit nothing about it. Duchess I, I quite like, written about one of Hugh's ex-girlfriends. Duchess is terrorist, not all of I really like Don't Bring Harry, which is a real departure, and it's about heroin, which predates their heavy heroin yeah. period. But it is it is associated with that, and, of course, it's slang for heroin. So it, that's a great song and quite a progression, I think. And it's ironic, I suppose, given what was about to happen Yes. to Hugh. Yes. I don't know when it was in 1980 because Hugh doesn't like to add information like dates when he writes his own memoir, but sometime in 1980. Do you know when it was in 1980? I don't. I don't. Um, But uh, certainly a a few months after The Raven came out. Routine roadblock, search of the vehicle. It was the end of a tour, end of a Stranglers tour. So Hugh had accumulated a stash of all sorts of stuff that people had given him. Drugs. Uh, Yes. Not not just teddy bears. Mainly drugs, yeah. (laughs) Mainly drugs. We're going to have to take you down for the teddy bears, I'm afraid. (laughs) So, yeah, the uh, stash did include coke, heroin, (laughs) dope. So, you know, it it was a Small, it was yeah, a smorgasbord, as they... A chemist shop. As uh, Johnny Socks would have described it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so he was nicked and did time. Five five weeks in jail. Five weeks in Pentonville. Pentonville, yeah. Pretty scary place which had previously and in future would house Boy George, George Michael, footballer George Best, all the great Georges, mm, Oscar wow. Wilde, uh, Pete Doherty of the Libertines also popped in. It's a in. real rock and roll prison. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you're going to get sent anywhere, go to Pentonville. Yeah, it's the <laughs> place to be. Place to be. He wrote a book about that called Inside Information, mm. which, um, well, a journalist interviewed him and uh, turned it into a book about his time inside, which was quite interesting. 
Uh, and when he was released, he said that was the end of his drugs career. Mm. which was a complete and utter lie. <laughs> yeah. There's a nice anecdote both in the jail book and his full memoir, Multitude of Sins, because the stories appeared in both, that you met a fellow who's a huge Stranglers fan and who'd bought a ticket for some forthcoming Stranglers show and he was really aggravated that he wasn't going to get to go to the show and then he sees Hugh in jail and he kind of goes, well... Well, you wouldn't have been seeing I guess you're not going to be there you're either. You're not going to be there either. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's hilarious. Well, the other side note to this is that uh, the, the Stranglers were the first band booked to play a tour of India and uh, that had to be cancelled because Hugh was locked up and the police went on to do it and created a lot of publicity mm. and mm. did very well out of the whole thing. Um, so Hugh still hasn't quite gotten over that. I think that he feels the police stole their thunder a few times. The police got some lovely photos for the inner sleeve of Zenyatta Mondata <laughs> from memory out of that out of that particular trip. I think um, there's a story there that the sales for Regatta de Blanc were taken from the Stranglers' sales, so that somehow the Stranglers didn't get to, to number one. It may have been for the Raven. Uh, because their sales were credited to Regatta de Blanc, which hadn't even been released yet. So yeah, there's, there's some bitterness there between... I'm not entirely sure how, how, how you can tell that one particular album's sales should have been accredited to another particular album. It was, there was nefarious goings-on behind mm, the scenes. I was Patrick. assuming there was yeah, nefarious goings-on. So anyway, yeah, so he's in jail and uh, comes out a changed man. Not really. There are stories of the heroin year. Yes. Can you... Can, is well, it time I, for the heroin year? I think, I think when you talk about the fourth album, sorry, fourth, fifth album, The Gospel According to the Men in Black, which comes out in February 81, that they had wanted to experiment with heroin and they had glamorised it to a degree. Um, mm. I think JJ said he wanted to try it because it was Lou Reed's drug of choice and the song Heroin that Lou Reed wrote. And they kind of dabbled in it, all four of them, and didn't really get too much out of it. And then at a certain point, JJ... And uh, Hugh got heavily into it and it became a lifestyle coupled with this paranoia of the men in black theory, which led them to kind of spiral down this kind of manhole into this album, which is um, not that depressing, but it's very weird. (laughs) It it doesn't sound like a heroin album to me, but it sounds like a spaced out Mm. conspiracy, um, too much time contemplating things album. Yeah. You were saying that you were really enjoying it. Yeah, well, I didn't really um, know it at the time. Well, it was another one that kind of fell off the charts a little bit in, in relative terms. Hmm. I mean, it got to number eight, but yeah. I think that was the beginning of the end for them in terms of chart success for quite a while. Self-produced. Had two yeah. singles, Thrown Away, which is quite different from the other stuff. I think it's a great track. Just I think like Just Like Nothing on Earth is great. Just well. Like Nothing on Earth. Just Like Nothing on Earth. Yeah, just like nothing on earth was was one of my favourites, and uh, turn the century's turn. Yep, and had that song Two Sunspots that I referred to yeah. before, which is about nipples apparently, not about sunspots. And the single Thrown Away only got to number 42, which is a flop of the highest order for them. For, it is, yeah. for them. That's what I'm saying about the beginning of it, and Hugh refers to it as an album that not a lot of people got. I certainly am not remotely interested in The Stranglers' ideas about aliens and UFOs and so on, or probably a lot of other people's ideas about it, but I do really like the album. Oh. And I think... Not, not th- enough sexism? Not, mm, well... 
They did frown on female aliens. That's true, yeah. yeah, but yeah. And the production really struck me, I have to say. It's pretty sophisticated production, pretty sharp and shiny. I think shiny. it's drum machines on it. I think he mm. might have started moving, mm. um, Jet Black might have started yeah. moving into drum machines. The synths are really interesting. The bass yeah. is still, you know, right up there. Yeah, the songwriting's th- really quite complex in places yeah. too. But for a self-produced album, like you might think they would have gone for a raw sound simply because they didn't have the studio nous to come up with something pretty slick. But, yeah, it is a really kind of sparkling album. It stands up album. a lot better now. I remember at the time being a bit confused by it mm. and probably starting to move away from them a little. Um, but now I listen to it, it sounds quite poppy, quite shiny. Yeah. They seem to have completely lost their anger. I mm. mean, the, the idea of this album being in any way connected to punk, mm. you, you know, is... And we're is, talking February 81, so we're not talking like years and years later. No, no, that's right. And so they, this they'd, is softened, they'd softened all the edges. Yeah, and, and this was their fifth album by this stage, so they were pumping them out. This was the first album where a song about clutching a teddy bear fitted in with the overall musical landscape <laughs> in a way that perhaps in the midst of um, Nice and Sleazy... <laughs> Not so much. ..wouldn't have done so. No, I think you prefer this period. <laughs> yeah. I do like Two Sunspots, but it does sound a little bit like Plastic Patron's comeback single. So, which... And, and Not I obviously, people know there, that. Obviously there was I, one? Obviously I say that. No, I mean, had he had a comeback single. Oh, okay. I thought you meant he did have a comeback single. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, you can't top the original, but, you know, it would have been a nice try had it been their attempt. Um, but it does almost sound like they were trying to alienate... Literally. Uh, literally and metaphorically their original audience because they were like tinkly sort of... Uh, Treated vocals too. Yeah. With strange kind of sped up things. And- yeah, and like children's kind of TV show type melodies and, and all that. So, I mean, they've always liked kind of winding people up a bit. And, oh, absolutely. And D- Didn't this album have some influence on the movie Men in Black? There was some... It's some, there is some connection between... I know it was a book. It's not like The Stranglers it came was up like with the a idea. Book it was a, a book that all comic, four of them it? started to read and got heavily into, but the movie is somehow does reference this. I'm waiting for the man black. So this would be your favourite Stranglers album, Patty? Well... In its entirety? Well, probably not. Ooh, okay. Unless we're about to go to my favourite. <laughs> we are about to go to it. Yes. We're going to go back to the live album in February 1979. No, no. <laughs> Ex Certificate, which we forgot to mention, came oh, out. Would you like to... I'd like to just say that they were, they were so chock full of hits in those days that they released that in February 79 and it got to number seven. It was basically just the live set of the albums that you could buy anyway and it was still a hit. Because the public had been starved of Starved of Strangler's Strangler's product. Product. <laughs> something, anything. Well, remember that The Raven came out in September, so nothing had been happening that year. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from the two solo albums, it had been a really lean six months. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we're at the 9th of November, 1981. We are indeed. The Stranglers have kind of hit a bit of a roadblock. It's yep. make or break is how they described it, mm. I think. Well, it had been nine months. Yeah, but in terms of sales and in terms of momentum, yep. uh, I mean, and prior to this, their, their managers that had gotten them to, to the stage that they had gotten them to when after Black and White came out advised them to break up and basically just leave it. You'll, you'll never do any more than you're going to do. So the momentum that, of That's punk, an odd thing to say about a band whose last album has gone to number eight. But that's punk. That was the era, I suppose. You've done all of this in 18 months. You'll never do anything more. And they didn't see any more longevity in, in, the, in the group. But this album was really, uh, had put them on the line. They needed this to be successful. La Folie. Um, and oddly, in some ways, it wasn't. It was their least successful album to date. I think it got to number 11. It got to number 11, but 
oddly their biggest hit single. And EMI's biggest hit single for 20-odd years, I think, was Golden Brown. Mm, yeah, there's four, four bars every what, fourth bar in certain sections. It's, a, it's actually what's called an asymmetrical compound meter, mm. I think. Something like that. It's actually in 13, the beginning is in 13-8, and it moves to 12-8 when he starts singing. Mm. So this is an eighth note grouping of three plus three plus three plus four. So it kind of goes one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. And then it goes back to the more common 12, 8. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Golden brown, texture like sun, lays me down with my mind. She runs throughout the night, no need to fight, never a frown. It's a strange, strange song, but unbelievably catchy and probably the song that anybody who knows The Stranglers would know. Um, and I think it had been around for a long time. Dave Greenfield had been playing this piece of music for a long time and the other band members had just gone, it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And then I think one day Hugh heard it and decided, I can do something with that. And they started working on it and... Um, the rest is history. It was a great single. Yeah, it was a great single. Mm. Uh, it wasn't the first single off the album, I don't think. Let Me Introduce You to the Family was, oh, okay. I believe. Which stiffed. Yeah, but that's a great song too. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is a Stranglers Tony Visconti, uh, Steve Churchyard album. Now, Tony Visconti of obviously David Bowie. Bowie. And he did more on those Bowie albums than people think. Than people realise. If you listen to him, he <laughs> if sure you've, did. If you've seen the particular yes. cartoon on YouTube, yeah, which features Eno and Bowie, like it, hilarious, what, five, six, seven minute clip mm. featuring Eno and Bowie. It was Adam Buxton, who's the uh, mm. English comedian. Yeah. He does a great Bowie impression. Yeah, and a pretty good Eno impersonation. Yeah. And yeah, all through the clip, Visconti is saying... Bit of reverb from co-producer Tony Visconti doing more than people think on this record. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, has, back to The Stranglers. Yes. Has there ever been a smash hit single, like the smash hit single, of a band that was less representative of their overall output? I mean, it doesn't even sound as if Jean-Jacques is playing bass. It sounds like a synth bass. Yeah, I don't think he knew what to do on this, apparently. He was a little bit nonplussed about what he should mm. contribute to it. It's a song about heroin for the most part and about a woman as well, yeah. which I think JJ let on in an interview and it subsequently got dropped from radio play. Once when it was BBC. at number two at yeah, the time. Yeah, where the BBC found out what the subject matter was. So, um, yeah, he took his revenge uh, on the band by making them release La Folie as the third single, which is no, nobody's idea of a single. Great song, but it's not really the kind of song you've released as a single sung entirely in French. No, that's yeah. right. And and there aren't many hit singles by bands that start with the words, good evening. <laughs> Bonsoir. Um, Graham, what was your take on La Folie when it came out? Had you moved on by then in November 81? Yeah, well, I loved the single. I remember hearing the title track, um, which I really loved. But yeah, I didn't buy the album. I'd kind of moved on, so I didn't. Uh, I've only just recently become familiar with all of these songs. Non-stop. Really good song, Tramp. Cruel Garden. 
Oh, I heard Strange Little Girl at the time. I think well, I'm... Strange Little Girl wasn't on this and it came out in July of 82. Mm. Oh, okay. It was a non-album track and it was their gift, parting gift to the record company because this was their last album for them. Right. And that's a great song and it's actually one of their oldest songs. It predates The Stranglers. I think it's, it was written with Hans Hans Yeah, Vormling. Vormling or, yeah um, one of the Johnny Soxes. Yeah, one of the Johnny Sox guys. Uh, and it was just deemed inappropriate for what The Stranglers were doing and I can't imagine Strange Little Girl being on No More Heroes or Rattus. is the every little thing she does is magic for the string. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it's probably 10 years old by this point. Mm. But yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful song and, and as Hugh said, it would have made a great companion to Golden Brown instead of La Folly. They got their hit anyway. The album was, was reasonably successful. They had the big hit single. Um, it kind of set them up. In some ways it set them up for the breakdown that was to come later because um, I think Hugh sang almost everything on this one, if, if not all, mm. apart from La Folly. And sort of set out his stall as the, the main guy. And I think there was some conflict about him not being appreciated for the work he was doing and, and all mm. the rest of it. Uh, I mean, he didn't leave until another nine years and they had subsequent success. They had a few hits in, a few the, hits in the mid-80s, yeah. You know, Always the Sun and, and other things, but we're, we're not going to talk Skin about Deep. Skin Deep was great as well. Um, I guess if we're going to call this the last album that we're talking about of the six, which is a lot of, lot of stuff and a couple of solo albums as well. Yeah. Can I just say before we wrap up, Mark, you and I saw them on May the 11th. 85. 1985. That's right. That was Festival. the oral sculpture tour. The oral sculpture tour. Yeah. And Hugh Cornwell was a lead vocalist. Yep. He was still in the band, yeah. We saw on October 9th, 2004 at the Metro here in Sydney, which was the same night as the general election mm-hmm. of John Howard versus Latham, if you remember that. And Paul Roberts was lead vocalist. And then uh, I saw them recently, uh, April 17th, 2016 at the Metro as well. And Baz Warren was the lead vocalist. I've seen three <laughs> different lead vocalists. Well, for a band that's been around a long time and they're still going, they're still playing, but it's really only now two members because Jet Black is is about 80 Mm. and can't play live shows anymore, barely can play in the studio, I think. So you've got Dave Greenfield and JJ. Um, They're still out there pumping out their hits and playing those shows. Mm. But, I mean, Hugh left after uh, 16 years, so he was there 74 to 90. Um, Their best period, obviously, in terms of success and influence. But you you decided, despite your sharp antennae for bands that are over the hill, you guys decided to go and see the Stranglers as late as 1985. We did because we had missed them in 79. I don't think they'd been back in that no. period that no. I'm aware of. A bit like going to see the Sex Pistols in 1996. It's mm. like, well, this is not this. Yeah. It's 20 years later, but you either get to see them or you don't. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I liked Oral Sculpture. I mean, it's no groundbreaking album in the way that I feel black and white is or something, but I wanted to say that I had seen them and I enjoyed it. No, but, that they had a brass section. Yeah, that, it was in that period of, you know, they were, you probably know they had hits in that period, a couple mm. of hits in Australia. And it was good. It was really enjoyable and they played some of the old stuff, but it wasn't the same. It would never be the same. It couldn't mm. be. Um, but, yeah. In terms of their influence on this period in music, I'd probably we would be in dispute about this, Patrick, you and I. Graham, you and I are probably a little bit more in agreement on on their place in the post-punk landscape, mm. shall we say. Yeah. You, you give me your take and tr- we'll try not to go over too much of a million ground that we've spoken about. Yeah, yeah, well, let's let, let's try not to duplicate each other's thoughts too much. I don't think we will. About the Stragglers. I see them as, as an 
as an amazing singles band, more or less. I feel like all, all of the albums have have kind of weaknesses. I thought they got they got better as they kind of kept, kept going. Um, I think be- because they didn't have the kind of atmospheric melancholic kind of thing that was really what I was into at the time, you know, as a 16, 17, 18, 19 year old, I think they were never really going to be one of my favourite bands. Mm. So there were cer- certain songs of theirs that I really liked, like like Duchess and, and, and uh, Get a Grip on Yourself and so on. But yeah, they were never really going to be my cup of tea. I was never going to be really passionate about them in the same way that you guys were. Were you aware of them at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you knew them. It was just one of those, another band doing great stuff because there's so much coming out. Yeah. And 78, the year of black and white, is just the, as we've talked about, the most amazing year for post-punk albums. It's just like so much stuff was coming out. Um, maybe it's a Brisbane thing, I don't know, Graham, but I mean, what's your take on them? I wasn't as big a fan as you were. Um, so I only, once again, I only bought the one album. I love the singles. I, going back and listening to them now, uh, I love the first three albums uh, and even the next three that we spoke about, they all have merit here and there. So mm. um, I think they're a, an important inclusion in our list of post-punk bands. Yeah, uh, look, I would agree with both of you. I, I think for a prolific band that were virtuoso musicians, they had something different to say. They left it behind very quickly. If you think, you know, May 78, it's pretty early in the piece to be producing an album like Black and White, which I still say is their best work. It's it's like progressive punk. It's really quite strange and out there, but catchy. And, I mean, I can listen to it over and over again, and I have listened to it hundreds of times. <laughs> I like all of their stuff, but of those six albums, it stands out for me a country mile in terms of establishing new territory and what can be done with... Uh, with with the new scene such as it is and I think that's probably why I would give them uh, you know a 10 out of 10 and, and give them the Guernsey for post-pump contenders. 